Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When we think of the Blitz, we think of the Blitz on London, that devastating period of destruction by the Luftwaffe on Britain's capital. But the truth is that there were so many blitzes and heavy bombardments on towns and cities right across the UK during the entirety of the war. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and here on Warfare over the last three years, I've chosen to focus on so many of these forgotten bombings and raids that impacted every section of the UK, from Plymouth to Belfast, Hull to Coventry, Birmingham to Swansea. And with this in mind today, we're going to focus in and explore a blitz that we've never covered on this podcast. This is known as the Clydeside Blitz, or otherwise known as the Clyde Bank Blitz, or the Blitz on Glasgow. And to make sure I got this history right, I travelled up to Scotland, to Glasgow, to speak with an expert local historian, Mark Conahan. Mark's been working on the lesser-known aspects of the Second World War for years, and the archival material, the first-hand research and first-hand accounts he's unearthed are revelatory. In fact, it's from Mark's research that the bombing of the Glasgow region might need to be reconsidered and redesignated as the heaviest, most lethal blitz of the Second World War. Hi Mark, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? Oh, very well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This is a rare treat. We get to sit in person and chat about a topic that we're both passionate about. And that is about the blitzes that took place during the Second World War. Now, when we use that term, blitz, then we immediately think of London, because that's where all the blitzes took place, obviously. But actually, we're sat here in Glasgow. And that's because one of the most ferocious, heaviest blitzes of the Second World War, potentially, controversially, the heaviest blitz of the Second World War, took place in the greater Glasgow area. And this is the Clyde Side Blitz. So tell us, Mark, what is the Clyde Side Blitz? Well, the Clyde Side Blitz was a Luftwaffe attack in Glasgow in March 1941. Uh, started on the 13th through the night to the 14th and then the second day they came back again on the 14th to the 15th. Most people refer to it when they talk about it as the Clyde Bank Blitz. But although Clyde Bank was decimated in this attack, and it really was, there was 50,000 people lived in Clyde Bank and there were 12,000 houses in Clyde Bank and you know there were 528 people killed. So the whole town was obliterated. Even though there were 50,000 houses, there were only estimated to be seven that were undamaged during the war. So everybody thinks about the Clyde Bank Blitz because it was decimated, but there was other places that were hit by large ordnance bombs, especially in Glasgow, and that is where my focus is. Although it's the Clyde side blitz I like to talk about, it takes in Clyde Bank and also Glasgow and also the surrounding areas 
because even places like Dumbarton and East Stirling and Stirlingshire and things like that also were hit by bombs as well. And that is often forgotten because everything gets focused on Clyde Bank and not the other areas around about it. Okay, so let's start with the basics of this because there were many heavy bombardments during the Second World War that didn't get that blitz status. So first of all, what makes a blitz? Well, I don't know who designated what makes a blitz because it doesn't seem to go by the casualties or the amount of ordnance or anything else. It just seems to go, obviously London blitz is the one everybody knows yeah. and people often refer to that as the blitz. And I think people have kind of jumped on that and said, well, you know, London had the Blitz, but we also had it in Manchester or Portsmouth or Swansea or any other cities that were bombed by the Luftwaffe in World War II. There is no such thing really as the Glasgow Blitz. It's never really been a name that happened in Glasgow for many different reasons. But Clyde Bank has got that designation, if you like, because I believe the Imperial War Museum, you know, has listed it on one of its sites as being in Britain's Blitz during World oh, War II. And because Clyde Bank has been listed, it means that uh, there's never been, Glasgow's never been listed on it or any of the other Greenock Blitz, for example, that happened in the May, that's never been listed. So what happens is, is all the, the kind of, everything is sucked into Clyde Bank. It becomes a message that's very Clyde Bank centric and people don't really know what happened in Glasgow or the other surrounding areas around Clydeside. Now, at the time, people referred to, to the attacks on Clydeside, you know, and what when people do that, they're taking in obviously every area that's along the banks of the Clyde. But when you get to like 1991 and it's the 50th anniversary of the attacks, there seems to be a shift away from saying the attacks on Clydeside or Glasgow and it seems to be more focused on Clyde Bank. And when you go through the millennium, that seems to pick up steam. There's a lot of articles where people are talking about the Clyde Bank Blitz and nobody's mentioned anything else that happens. And then 2010, there was a, num a couple of books that were printed and basically they, they took a, a view that it was Clyde Bank centric. Everything was about Clyde Bank. The, they even went out to say, whereas in the past people just spoke about Clyde Bank and ignored what happened elsewhere, they basically argued that everything was meant to happen in Clyde Bank and Clyde Bank was the central target of the Luftwaffe and basically ignored everywhere else. So if bombs fell in Glasgow, that was because it was creep back effect and they weren't meant to be dropped in Glasgow, they were meant to be dropped in Clyde Bank. Right, so just inaccuracy of the yes. broader area. Now this fascinates me because there are these different designated blitzes all across the country and I have heard of the Clyde bank blitz. I hadn't heard of the Clydeside blitz and I didn't believe there was a blitz on Glasgow. But from what I know from your research is actually none of those terms, Clydeside, Clydebank or Glasgow is a broader, bigger city in Scotland, one of Scotland's largest cities. They're, none of them really cover what happened there because it happened across all three of those areas and it happened simultaneously across that period. So take us in exactly what happened during this blitz on this part of the world in Scotland during the Second World War. First of all, what were they targeting? Well, Glasgow obviously, you know, was designated the second city of the British Empire at that point. And there was a lot of heavy industry in Glasgow. Of course, everybody knows of the shipyards. Yeah. But you're talking just outside Glasgow, you have massive steel factories, coal mines, you've got all sorts there. You also have a lot of heavy industry. And then when the war comes along, you also have a lot of munitions-led things. So you've got Albion Motors that are making tanks. You've got ball bearing factories everywhere. You and ball got, bearings are vital in yes. absolutely everything. Yes, everywhere. Everything that rolls is needing a ball bearing. Yeah. Everything that's turning. You've got Rolls-Royce and Hillington that's making engines for planes. You've got the Royal Navy oil refinery at Dalnotter, which is currently where the Erskine Bridge is now, that was a Royal Navy fueling station for Atlantic convoys and stuff like that. So there's there's plenty going on in Glasgow. How vital was it for the Atlantic convoys? It's very important, I believe. From what I've read, it's very important because ships coming across the Atlantic, it's the shortest journey between the east coast of America to Britain. Right. Which, of course, is why Glasgow had a, a very historical 
period and you know going back to the 17-1800s is because it was the shortest distance between the American ports and the British ports right across the Atlantic Ocean. So the Navy, when the convoys are coming across from North America and Canada and they're coming into the, the western side of Scotland, you know, they're coming to different places to, to berth. But if they're going further into England and they need refuel, do we go to the Dalnotter station and then do we go down? The Clyde was floating Navy ships the whole the entirety of the war. Everything was in there, especially in that part in 1941 because Glasgow had not really been attacked much. Yeah. Uh, there were nuisance attacks that had came in the... Starting in 1940, there was a few nuisance attacks in the July. Single bombers coming across, uh, dropping eight bombs. There was more attacks September, December 1940, but nothing too much. So was this a deliberate shift by Goring? Because we had the focus on trying to defeat the RAF. We know that. If, if Goring had continued to focus in on that, they may well have defeated the RAF, but we have the Battle of Britain, we have victory. We know the history at this period of time. And there's a movement trying to morale bomb the people of the United Kingdom to try and defeat London. But then there's a shift that's often forgotten. And it's the shift towards trying to really create a, a, a cordon, a blockade of Britain in many ways. This focus on ports and then this focus on trying to destroy British industry. And so what you're saying here is as we move through 1941, we're starting to see that Glasgow is brought up as a deliberate target in terms of trying to destroy its war-making capacity. So I'm going to ask you, how do you know that? How do you know that that's what the Luftwaffe wanted to do? Because this is where all the historical uncertainty comes from, is, you know, it's so difficult to get hold of these German archival resources. So many of them were destroyed, so many just don't exist. Yeah. Well, there definitely is a shift on what the Luftwaffe is doing in 1941. And it seems to be driven mostly by the fact that they know that the British government can bend the beams that they've been using for navigation. So whereas these beams are very effective in, say, the Coventry raids in 1940 and other places, and they, by 1941, the turn of 1941, they know that the British are doing something. They just don't know what it is. And the British government at the time, they, you know, they, they're using captured Luftwaffe pilots and basically recording what they're saying. And they, we know this because they've, they've actually wrote down what these guys were saying in this period. And they were basically talking amongst themselves, thinking they're talking privately. But actually what they're doing is letting the British know that, yes, we know what they're doing. They know, we know they're bending beams because they were using them not just for targeting, but they were actually using them for time delay to drop bombs on cities to get precisely on the target area. So it was done by timings and following beams and then it would count down and then it would release automatically. So once they started doing that, they realised that we're in the middle of the countryside dropping bombs when it should be in the centre of some city. So they know the beams are getting bent, they just don't know how they're doing it. So they decide to move to a different strategy of targeting ports, especially you know in full moonlight nights, following the coastline of Britain. And that's when you see Liverpool and even Belfast and Glasgow coming into the frame more. Is it true? Is that because you could see the moon's reflection on the river itself? You knew the signature of the river, so you could do visual bombardment despite the fact there was blackout? Well, I, that certainly is part of it, but it's, I don't think it's as important as people have made it. You know, again, you know, a lot of these pilots flying up the West Coast, these are the same guys that are bombing London on a Monday and maybe bombing Liverpool on a Wednesday. They know the geography of Britain very well. They're flying at 20,000 feet. When the moon is shining on the, the geography of the country, you can see exactly the where the shapes are popping out. And they even use, I mean, when they bombed Glasgow, they bombed Liverpool the night before. 
And then the next night, they actually had a diversion where they, bomb, they sent 60 or 70 bombers towards Liverpool and the main fleet continued up to Glasgow. And what they were doing is, is when they're flying up and down, they would actually use, when the guns in Liverpool or Manchester were firing at them, they would say, oh, well, that's, we're over Liverpool, we're over Manchester. They didn't really have a fear of the anti-aircraft batteries, but it was good for them to locate where they were. So it's like a way marker? Yes. There is records, German records, of some of the bombers that were flying back from Glasgow were actually flying past Liverpool. They knew exactly where they were because they said that the people of Liverpool always gave them a warm welcome. You know, so they knew exactly you know, where they were. And when the moon is shining down and you're at 20,000 feet, you can pick out the targets. And part of the myth that kind of formed, even in the attacks in Glasgow and Clydeside, was as they flew up the river in a moonlight night. You know, but that actually is not the case. If you actually look not where people have said the waves came from, but where the actual German records and the British records say the waves came from, that's a totally different thing to what has been out there has been the facts for years. So tell us about the character of the raid itself. I've studied many different Luftwaffe bombardments during the Second World War, and there's always a strategy in place, and there's always a type of munition that is, is used to try and create a specific type of destruction. What was it that the Luftwaffe used on Glasgow, and what was their strategy? Well, it's kind of strange because up until that early part of 1941, we're used to seeing, Coventry is a prime example, we're used to seeing KG-100 flying in and putting markers down bombing areas for bombs to come along after them. And the KGR-100 was using basically the targeting. You know, they're the ones who had the, the Heinkels that were fitted with the aerials to follow the Girats and the different radio beams. And when they were coming in doing that, the following waves after them were actually just following where they were and dropping them in between where they've marked. In Glasgow, it's different because KG-100, there's actually three different units that normally would be marking that were used later on in the attack. They were not used at the beginning, which is kind of normal. They were actually fly. KG-100 flew into Glasgow, I think, about 90 minutes after the raid started. Whereas most of history is told is they were the first ones in. Right. They were the pathfinders who came in and did yep, it. Yep. And that's what they did do in other places, but they didn't do that in Glasgow that night. And they followed that typical strategy that bombers, whether they be Allied or whether they be German, they would come in and they would drop bombs first which of course would send people underground. Yep. And they would open up, the lovely term dehousing, it would open up the roofs of people, they would follow that up with incendiary bombs to set fires, knowing full well that the fire people and everybody else would come to the rescue, and then the next way we would come in with heavy bombs and basically destroy the people who were trying to save people or firemen or anything yeah, else. that's what they did in, in Grimsby during the yes. Second World War. They dropped cluster bombs with timer fuses deliberately so they'd yep. sit there, and when all of the air raid wardens came out and the ambulance crews and the firefighters, these would start exploding all yeah. over the place, killing these vital first responders. Yeah, and that's part of the strategy. It's part of the strategy of what they're doing because you, you have trained firemen that used to putting out fires. If you get rid of them, fires burn. And that's as we know, I mean, we always think of people being bombed, but the majority of the damage is caused by fire, by incendiary bombs, gas explosions in those days. That certainly was the case in Glasgow. You know, we always think about people being bombed, but that is a kind of another part of it. You know, there's a direct effect of a bomb blowing up and killing people but there's also blowing up houses the incendiary bombs come along set fires and the fires do a lot more damage in times hi there i'm don wildman host of the new podcast american history hit twice a week i'll be exploring stories from america's past to help us understand the united states of today join me as i head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists. Tour Central Park before it was Central Park. 
and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know, again, from your research, and you really are leading the way on informing us all about this, but parachute mines were particularly important in this attack. Yeah, the situation we have in Glasgow, Clyde Bank... The first bombs fall in Glasgow. The first bomb that fell in Glasgow was a parachute mine that landed in Bankhead Primary School. Nobody knows why it was dropped there because most of them were dropped in specific targets. The first waves of bombers that are coming in are doing the usual. They're dropping small calibre bombs, 50 kilogram bombs, and then they're falling up with incendiary bombs and then some bigger munitions. And then what happens is, is because the Royal Navy Dalnota Royal Depot, which is just north of Clyde Bank, that gets set in fire. Singer's Yard and Clyde Bank gets set in fire and Yoker Distillery gets set in fire. It creates a tremendous fire and that's why Clyde Bank gets decimated because all these bombers are falling in, dropping the bombs between these fires. But all the acrid smoke from the oil terminal is blocking the, the city. Nobody can see where they're flying after that. So the Luftwaffe bombers coming in, they then look for secondary targets. And their secondary targets at that time are railway lines, main roads, junctions, railway yards, you know, things like that. So what you see happening for the second load of bombers from about 10.30 onwards on that first night, the parachute mines start to get dropped. These mines would normally be dropped on, you know, industrial targets, shipyards, the oil works, things like that. But because they can't see them, they're dropping in railway lines. And it just so happens in, in the west of Scotland that night, there was a 10 mile an hour wind from the west. And you can actually follow everywhere there's a parachute mine. The mines were drifting across and landing in tenement houses right at the side of where the railway lines were. So, oh, so they were landing in the civilian areas? Yes, yes, they were. Not one parachute mine that was dropped landed on the railway line. Oh, that's dreadful. But they dropped in the houses. They just flew across and landed right 
across from where the railway lines were. And the tenements in Glasgow were, as I said, most of the dead were not caused by the explosion, but caused by fallen masonry and stone buildings falling on shelters in the background. Give us some examples. I mean, what sort of levels of death, injury and destruction are we talking about here? Are there any specific cases? There is numbers. I mean, the largest one is in Nelson Street in Tradeston. It's quite close to the shipyards in the, the port area, but the target was the railway line. And it drifted across and it fell between a tram car and the tenement houses. It was 11.58 at night. People were on the tram, obviously, trying to get home during this attack. And the bomb exploded. And what it did was basically pancake the tenements on one side and they fell into the back courts where all the, the shelters were. So there were 99 people killed in the back court. And then there were subsequent people killed in the tram who were right next to it. But as I said, there were 31 people in the tram. 20 people actually survived. And wow. the bomb exploded about 20 feet away from the tram. So how they survived is basically a miracle. But the, because of the damage there, that is why they all died. Nearly every parachute mine that exploded was pancaking tenements onto the back gardens where all the communal air raid shelters were. But hang on, that's over 100 people dead. Yes. That's not saying injured, that's dead. Well, that's dead. From yeah. one, one bomb. bomb. Yeah. That has to be one of the heaviest death tolls from a single bomb in the entirety of the UK during the Second World War. Yes, it's up there. It's up there. I've never really found more uh, one that was higher than that. I mean, I mean, there may well be, but I've never came across it. Well, this brings me to defence. Now, we know that air defence was incredibly important. It was important to invest in air defence in areas that you knew were going to be heavily bombed. So, That was, of course, going to be London. It was going to be Liverpool, and that changed as the war went on. What was the air defence... I'm worried I know the answer to this. What was the air defence like in and around Glasgow in 1941? Pretty pathetic, to be honest. They had built a number of heavy anti-aircraft batteries around the city, you know, with the expectation that the Luftwaffe would attack at some point. But they weren't very good, to be honest, at targeting and shooting down German aircraft. Matter of fact, in the entirety of the war, not one German aircraft was shot down by anti-aircraft guns in Glasgow. The Right after the attacks in March, there was further attacks in April, there were further attacks in May, and the government decided to double the amount of anti-aircraft batteries around Glasgow and basically put more... Obviously, the South was getting bombed a lot more and more frequently a shorter distance to travel. So therefore, they decided to put the... They knew they needed to protect Glasgow because the Luftwaffe obviously had it as a target. So by early June, they had actually managed to build all these additional ones, which, of course, then there was no major attacks after that because Hitler decided to invade the Soviet Union. So you finally get this air defence that's put into place, but it doesn't make any difference for this earlier attack, of course. Now, you say about air defence on the ground, was there any air interception? Did any planes go up to try and stop these bombers? Yes, we, we actually have records of planes leaving from what is, is now Glasgow Airport, but was Abbott Cinch Airport there. And there was a fleet of planes was sent up, but they were told not to engage the planes. They had to stay above 20,000 feet. Now, right, nobody, why? nobody really knows. Okay. There is actually stories from actual pilots that were there. There was one pilot who actually disobeyed orders and tried to attack planes. It didn't do much. But, you know, one did try to do it. Now, bear in mind, these these guys are only up in the sky for 30 minutes at a time. And, you know, but they were told not to engage unless it's above 20,000 feet. And I believe that probably that was the range of the anti-aircraft guns. They were worried about planes getting shot down by their own guns. Okay, so that makes some common sense, I guess, in some way. Yeah. You don't want to destroy your own planes. You don't want the anti-aircraft guns getting confused with allied aircraft. And so you stay above that. But in the end, actually, you're just creating almost this this pretty much safe haven below. 
Well, exactly, and a lot of the German bombers, although they may have come in at 20,000 feet, they were actually circling at 10,000 feet and even down as lower than that to actually pick out targets because by an hour after the initial attack, there was actually no ammunition left for the anti-aircraft guns. They ran out. Oh, so there was literally nothing? There was nothing. We actually have German accounts of the attack in the second night where they were basically saying they were flying in circles looking for targets because there was no ammunition getting fired up at them. They there had command no, of the air? Yeah, and there was no planes trying to attack them. Now, it's kind of strange because we all, I mean, obviously maybe in hindsight, but we all know that the, the best effective measure of shooting down German planes was other planes. That seems to be the way the Germans learned to do it and certainly the way we learned to do it. And the anti-aircraft guns are more about public morale. It seems to be that we think, well, our boys are doing their bit, or our girls, actually, because most of them were manned by females in about Glasgow. So they were actually thinking, oh, well, they're out there shooting these guns, they're protecting us, but really it was nothing because they couldn't hit any planes. They weren't hitting them at this point in the war. They were not able to bring down the planes in Glasgow anyway. And air defence is still incredibly difficult. I mean, it's strange to be talking about city bombing, isn't it? At a yeah. time when you have major cities, civilian centres in Ukraine that are being bombed on a, on a weekly basis by the Russian military. And we know how difficult air defence is yeah. in Ukraine as well. But back to Glasgow. Now, if you've run out of any sort of air defence within 30 minutes and your planes have been told that they are, can't intercept... I can only imagine that the overall cost to the broader Glasgow, Clydeside and Clydebank area in terms of human life and injury must have been immense. But we can talk about thousands of deaths, but how do we put that into context? Well, there were a number of blitzes that took place across the UK during the Second World War. So where would you place this particular blitz in terms of, you know, let's say, I don't know, is, is London, was, was the blitz on London the most the most horrific, the most damaging in terms of human life? Where would the, the Clydeside, Clydebank, Glasgow, Blitz, whatever we want to call it, where would that come in terms of the top 10? Well, in terms of obviously the amount of people who died due to German bombing, London would be the highest one because it sustained more attacks over a longer period. So more people would have died in London from yeah. all the bombings than had died, obviously, in Scotland. Yeah. But what you have is when you try to break it down now by you know actual single attacks, the, the reason why there's a discrepancy in Glasgow is, is that people don't actually know how many people died in Glasgow. And it's, it's missing from most of the records because the official death toll for Glasgow hasn't changed since April 1941, whereas other ones have actually been updated and everything else. Now, Clyde Bank, when you look at, say, for example, if the Imperial War Museum has a list of blitz cities during World War II, there's a list of maybe like 14, 15 cities. Yeah. Glasgow doesn't appear on it at all. Right. So Clyde Bank appears on it. So it's been designated its own blitz, but Glasgow isn't even mentioned in it. And when you actually take it just in face value, the, the official total, maybe not the real total, but the official total of people who died in Glasgow in, World War, in this attack, then what you find is Glasgow comes in at number three. It's London, Belfast, Glasgow. So just singly, Glasgow? Just singly, yeah. Okay. If you take the Clydeside area, and bear in mind the Germans didn't know what Clydebank was compared to Glasgow, it's one, so one area along the Clydeside. If you look at any maps they're attacking, the Germans think they're attacking Glasgow. They don't know the difference. They don't know what the Joker boundary is between Glasgow and Clydebank. I think most people even today have struggled to find out where Clydebank starts and where Glasgow ends, you know, because it's right along the Barton Road. So what happens is, is the Germans are flying in and because of the fires at Dalnotter and Singer's Yard and also at Joker, that's where the initial bombs are all dropped. But the German bombers coming in later they have to divert to secondary targets, as I was saying, and that's why the parachute mines end up in the railway lines, which end up killing most of the civilians in Glasgow. But Nearly it's all, all one mission. Majors. 
What's that? Sorry? But it's all one mission. Yes, it's all one mission. And the Germans, and this is the thing I always say when people ask, well, how do you know it was attacking Clydeside and not Clydebank? Because the narrative has been always that it was the Clydebank Blitz and Clydebank was the only target. How do you know this? And I say, well, you just need to look at the German records. The German records don't mention Clydebank. They have five or six primary targets in the Clydebank area. And they're big targets. Dalnotter is the number one target. But if you look at Glasgow, there's about 144 primary and secondary targets. So therefore, the Germans weren't flying all that way just to bomb Clydebank. They've got far too much munitions falling out of the sky just to bomb Clydebank. They're bombing everywhere in this general area. The problem is, with all the smoke is created, the, the, the next waves, the second and third waves, have to divert to secondary targets, and that's mostly when Glasgow's getting hit. Right. You know? So it would be London as the most damage during a, a blitz attack. Yeah. And then Glasgow, if we take the figures, may come in as third. Third. What would Clydebank, Clydeside be then? Well, if you combine the two of them together, you're talking about just over 1,200 people that were killed. So where would that come? That would come in a second after London, a couple of hundred behind London. Right. But this is where it gets a bit more complicated. Well, hang on, let's just clarify. So we've got around 1,400 dead on an attack on a single day in London. Yes. Around 1,200 dead on Clydeside, Clydebank area. Yep. And then that's in second. So only a couple of hundred less. And then in terms of third would be Glasgow in terms of how many? It would be Belfast would be third. Oh, Belfast would be third. On 800 and then Glasgow would be fourth if you separate it from Clydeside. With? It was six. Well, the official total was 670. So if you combine, if we take that this is one mission, one Luftwaffe mission to bomb the Clydeside area, the Clydebank area and Glasgow, and you take that 1,200 figure roughly, mix it with the 600 from Glasgow, then you've got 1,800, which is 400 more than London. So could you be saying, if your research proves to be true, and I know there's still a lot more work to be done, that this is the heaviest single blitz attack on a city on the UK during the Second World War? Well, what we have right now is we have a figure that's roughly just over 1,200 people for Clydeside. Yeah. Yes. And if you take that as the base figure, yeah. now, as I said, Glasgow has not updated its figure since April 1941. The problem that we have is a lot of people that were injured in Glasgow were moved from Glasgow to other areas and other hospitals. Because the majority of people who died in the attack on Glasgow specifically were not caused by a blast from a bomb. They were caught by falling masonry, falling on their heads in the back gardens and right. the, the shelters. These people were shipped out of hospitals all over Lothian region, Stirling region, all over the place, all hospitals. And a lot of these people, when I was looking in the records, a lot of these people died three, four, five, even a year after the attack. And they were not designated as killed by enemy action because they're dying so long after the attack. Now, I haven't done a lot of research into this, but I know that my figures, you know, are probably about 15 to 20% higher than what the official total was. The Commonwealth Wargrave figures are actually higher than what the official total was. So if you just take the Commonwealth Wargraves of civilian casualties in this attack in Glasgow, that is higher than the official total. So there's anomalies here. And then if you look at my figures on top of that, they're actually higher still. And I still have to actually dig in and do more research in this to find more because every time I look, I actually find more. Wow. So I honestly believe that by the time this is finished and I'm done and I've counted all these figures, that the May attack on London in 1941, which was the, the highest death toll of any single attack, will be less than the one on Glasgow and Clydeside in March 1931. Now, if I was to say that to most people, they would say, I can't be right. No way, because nobody's heard about what happened in Glasgow 
in World War II in these March attacks. Clyde Bank is known. They teach it in all the schools in Glasgow. But Glasgow is not. Even schools that were actually bombed where people died, they don't know that people died in the footprint of where the current school is and are teaching about the Clyde Bank Blitz instead of what happened in the place where the school is. And that is all over Glasgow. Now, the strange thing about this is Glaswegian people know about it. They don't know the scope of every attack in every district. But if you come from Mary Hill, you know what happened in Common Street. If you come from Tradeston in the south side of the Gorbals, you know what happened in Nelson Street. If you come from the East End, you know the bombs that fell there and the bombs that fell later at the famous Barras in Glasgow and Kent Street. Everybody knows bombs because everybody listened to their granny or their grandpa or their great-granny and grandpa now telling them the stories of the war because everybody from every age group I know in Glasgow is fascinated with what happened in the war but they don't know what happened in the big picture. They're taught what happened locally, but they're not taught what happened in Glasgow because nobody talks about it. And let's be honest, a lot of it was deliberately kept secret yes. in order to keep morale high. Yeah. And so when I was doing lots of research on the East Coast bombings of the UK, it was a, a northeast coast town had been bombed and there'd be no specific town named in the newspaper. And fr from my research, when you look through the Ministry of Information and some of the things that Churchill was putting out there, they want to keep this as secret as possible. And there's a, a kind of pragmatic reason for this. You don't want the Luftwaffe to know how successful they've been either. But I feel like one of the legacies of this is that there's a disjointed history of the blitzes that happened all across the UK. You have this London-centric understanding of the Blitz and the bombardments during the Second World War, this London Blitz spirit, but it was happening everywhere. Yeah, and even after, I mean, the, the attacks on Clydeside that I'm talking about are in March 1941. Two months later, in May 1941, Greenock, Port Glasgow and Gourock got hit very heavily with German bombers as well, specifically targeting them. They did target little bits in Glasgow at the same time, but the majority of the bombers were aiming for Greenock in Gourock, in Port Glasgow, and there were nearly 300 people killed in those very small towns in Glasgow. And that is totally, I mean, there is a there is an effort now amongst some good people that do a lot of good work in Greenock to have that commemorated and memorialised, and that is wonderful. Clyde Bank does the best job of anybody of memorialising what happened to them during World War II. Greenock is trying its best in Gourock to, to show what happened to civilians that died there. Glasgow, it's like nobody even knows what's going on. There's not a, there's one what memorial to people who died in enemy bombing in Glasgow and it's in Bankhead Primary School. You can't even see it because it's in the school. One memorial. One memorial. No, there's no memorials to anywhere. Matter of fact, I remember when I first started investigating this, it was around about the anniversary, so it would have been, I think it was about 2016, I, I seen that there was going to be a memorial in Clyde Bank and I contacted Glasgow to ask if there was any memorials planned in Glasgow and I was told nothing happened in Glasgow, it was Clyde Bank you're talking about. And that is a common theme. People who, you know, who live in areas you know, who maybe just seen, you know, a modern building there, they don't know exactly what happened. Unless you've got family in a specific area and they're passing on stories, you know, generationally, that you will know this happened. But it is, when you think that in Glasgow alone there could have been, I mean, the official total of 670 has died there and nobody even knows what happened. Nobody memorialises it, nobody does nothing. It's almost unbelievable. Yeah. But your research is a first step to writing this historical wrong, this podcast. All our listeners out there now know exactly what happened. But what I've got to ask you, Mark, is when can we read more about this? When can we see all of these details put into a book form? No pressure, of course. <laughs> Thank you. No pressure. Well, I started this year, I actually put a website up to basically detail all the bombs that have been recorded in Glasgow. And if you go to the website, you'll see, hopefully you'll put that in the link somewhere. Yeah, what's the website? It's www.targetclydeside.co.uk. 
Great, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if you go to that website, you can actually find street by street every bomb that has been listed has been dropped on Clydeside, not just in Glasgow. And I'm working through the dates for every attack in Clydeside. So I do, I'm working on the Greenock ones as well as the Glasgow Clydeside ones and everybody else. And I started off doing the Glasgow ones and I've also added the Clyde Bank ones and also using a lot of aerial photographs from NCAP to basically find bomb craters and stuff like that just to, to show how many bombs have been dropped in Glasgow and the Kilpatrick Hills and all the areas around about it. So you can actually go in, it's a Google Maps based thing, so you can go in there, type your address in and you'll be able to see exactly what bombs fell in your areas. And I'm also putting a lot of details on there to do with commemoration purposes of people who actually have been listed as died in these bombs as well. And on top of that, I also have the target information for graphics of what the Luftwaffe targets were. And I think when you put it all together, what you basically can see is, is what the Luftwaffe were aiming for, where they did aim, where they dropped the bombs, and the, the results of dropping the bombs in these built-up areas. You know, because as typical as anywhere in these days, you know, the workers were housed next to the factories, and you can see when you miss the factory, you're going to be hitting the, the workers. That sounds like an amazing resource. And you also tweet about this on Twitter as well. What's, yep. what's your tag? Target Clydeside. Target, Target Clydeside. And any editors, commissioning editors, who are out there, publishers, listeners to this podcast, then you need to get in contact with Mark and sign this up as a book. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to get you back on the podcast when your research has finished this. We know it's never going to finish, but we're going to need an update. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much, James, for having me. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.